This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from inside Syria about why President Bashar al-Assad thinks he may have his enemies on the run. But we begin in Europe, where Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, was in Paris this week to talk about new terms for Britain's membership of the European Union. The visit was the first of a series of trips to European capitals by Mr Osborne and Prime Minister David Cameron, ahead of a planned referendum on Britain's EU membership. So how is the charm offensive going? To find out, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, how did Mr Osborne get along in Paris? Um, well, he held talks with some of the senior ministers in Paris um, earlier this week. And um, afterwards, in the press conference, he described uh, how he was confident of getting a win-win agreement for Britain. But again, we saw some suggestions from the French side that really there was not enough in the way of detail from what exactly Britain is, is trying to secure on this. I think it's significant, though, that it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer that, is now, that, that arrived in Paris and held those talks. I think increasingly um, he is going to be playing a, a greater role in the renegotiation. And I think it reflects an emphasis on this issue about Britain not being a member of the Eurozone and yet a member of the EU and how to balance that tension. So I think it's quite interesting um, that he met the economy minister and that a lot of the discussion took place around things like the economy, trade, single market and, and that kind of material. Now, the French have been floating this notion of a Eurozone government or a Eurozone parliament for the last uh, few days. How would uh, this notion of a renegotiation of Britain as, an, as, as a non-EU, uh, non-Eurozone member chime with what the French are thinking of in terms of the well, Britain are saying, they say that they believe that the Eurozone, the 19 members of the Euro that share the Euro currency, need to be fully integrated, need to be more integrated for the Euro project to work. Um, but they are concerned that any decisions there will not have an adverse impact on, on themselves and other I mean, there's other countries like Poland, for example, who also don't use the euro that are heavy hitters in the European Union. Um, but I do think, uh, worryingly for Britain, um, over during the Greek crisis, um, when a deal was finally reached for Greece, as part of a plan for bridge financing for Greece, um, Britain was asked to stump up some money for that. Um, and Britain has argued right, rightly that they had been given a provision in a council summit conclusions that they would no, never be used, their money would not be used again to tap a, for, for a further Greek bailout. And yet the European Commission went and did exactly that. So I think that was a bump in the road, if you like, over the last few weeks and shows some of the difficulties that are involved in trying to separate out policy um, between the Euro members and the non-Euro members. And is there a kind of a philosophical problem here too insofar as Britain is a member of the single market and presumably would wish to continue to be part of the single market and is also part of various other uh, elements of uh, European Union integration and yet uh, they don't want to be full participants in European solidarity? Yes. Well, I mean, what they're saying now, and I think the, the fact of the Greek crisis, um, you know, that, that, that really exploded over the last few months, um, has really 
it's how it's going to play out in terms of Britain's relationship in the EU and public support for that is very, very interesting. Um, and I think they, what they are kind of rightly saying now is that not just Britain anymore who are talking about not joining the euro. There's now serious concerns that other countries that may, that legally are supposed to join the euro eventually, that they are also getting cold feet. I mean, I think nobody believes that in the next couple of years you're going to see countries like Poland or Hungary, etc., wanting to join the single currency. So in that sense, Britain could be getting more support from these other non-euro member uh, countries who are also uh, becoming less and less keen about uh, joining, the, joining the euro. Now, as, as I as you mentioned, George Osborne was leading this particular meeting in uh, in Paris, but David Cameron is planning to meet Angela Merkel and meet various others over the next uh, couple of months before the uh, his own Conservative Party's conference in October. Apart from this whole issue of the Eurozone and Britain's non-membership of it, what are the other big issues do you think that the British are going to be trying to look at? Well, the, the three other main issues are um, they want uh, kind of clamp down on regulation and uh, improving Europe's uh, competitiveness, and that, that means strengthening the single market, essentially, particularly in services, which is something that Germany, for example, is, is not too keen on. That's one aspect. Um, and then we have the other big elephant in the room, which is migration, and this is undoubtedly going to be the main sticking point for Britain. Um, it wants some kind of uh, mechanism to try and curb or at least uh, shape uh, EU-free movement rules. Um, and here, it's going to come up a lot against a lot of barriers. Um, there is going to be huge uh, resistance to this from most member states, and in particular these East European countries, Poland, etc., Latvia and Lithuania. Um, but also some support, um, obviously we can see that anti-immigration agenda is a huge political domestic issue in a lot of countries, including in Germany and France. Um, so that is going to be the real sticking point. Now, what we expect to see is that within the next six months, um, some kind of progress to be made uh, on, on technical talks, legal background talks on how um, some changes could be achieved um, with the idea that at the December European summit um, there could be some kind of a tentative agreement as, as early as December um, or if not, some kind of a political uh, statement on the next step forward. So that's the kind of time frame we're looking at at the moment. But if we go back for a moment, Suzanne, to the issue of migration, one of the things they have been talking about is that perhaps you could have some kind of restrictions uh, or, or different rules on how uh, new migrants from within the European Union would be able to claim social welfare benefits. And those seem to be pretty straightforward, that uh, it doesn't seem to be too problematic to agree terms on that. But if you were actually to really make significant changes to the uh, EU freedom of movement of people within the European Union, would that not involve changing the European treaties? Yes, I mean, that, that's one of the main uh, issues for Britain. And really, frankly, they have not clarified. Cameron has been very... I mean, people have criticised Cameron for not uh, being specific enough, but that is probably a, a, a strategy. Um, he's been very careful what he has said about treaty change. They haven't ruled it out and they haven't ruled it in yet. Um, and whether they can achieve the change they want without uh, reopening the treaties is a key question. Now, what's been happening over the last month in Brussels is that senior uh, British officials have been meeting with senior, the, really the, the top echelons of uh, the European Commission and the European Council in various meetings with their lawyers on either side, trying to work out and explore 
what kind of legal room and legal mechanisms are available uh, for Britain in terms of tinkering somewhat with some of the issues around migration, presumably without having recourse to changing the treaties. But if it becomes clear that Britain cannot uh, secure significant changes this way, well, then we could be entering a real, a real stalemate because I think there's absolutely zero appetite from other countries to reopen the EU treaties at this point. And if they were to reopen the EU treaties, would countries like Ireland have to have a referendum on them? Yes, most likely it would depend, but yes, probably we would be looking at a referendum. I mean, after the Lisbon Treaty, it was said that this was going to be the treaty to, to, for the, to end all treaties for a generation. But of course, what's also happening in parallel is the, the existential questions about the uh, future of the Eurozone and whether you need treaty change to try and um, move towards more uh, monetary union. Um, and these ideas that you mentioned that France has been pushing, you know, would they need treaty change also? So um, even though people are saying they're rooting it out, I think the direction the euro is going in means that it may well come back on the table earlier than people think, but probably in any event not in time for uh, the EU uh, referendum in Britain, which is going to take place for the end uh, of uh, next year, of 2017. Suzanne Lynch from Brussels, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Rebel groups this week launched a major offensive on government-held areas in northwestern Syria in a bid to advance towards a coastal region vital to President Bashar al-Assad's control of the west of the country, according to monitoring groups. If the offensive is successful, it'll be the latest in a succession of defeats for Assad, whose army now controls only a quarter of Syria's territory, although a majority of the Syrian population lives there. Yet Assad was sounding defiant this week, and a change of policy on the part of some of the Syrian rebels' most powerful outside backers has given him hope of clinging on to power. Our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen, has been in the Syrian capital, Damascus, for the past few days, and she joins me on the line now. Michael, you were at a conference in Damascus which was uh, dealing with terrorism, a rather specific definition of uh, which terrorist groups they were talking about. But nonetheless, they were talking about mostly some of these uh, rebel groups that are opposed to the Assad regime. What did you hear there? Well, the groups that they were talking about specifically are what they call the Takfiri groups, which mean the uh, Sunni extremist groups with connections with Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, and Qatar. Um, and the conference was attended by maybe a thousand people, at least on the opening day, and then uh, by several hundred journalists from across the Arab world and a few journalists from Europe. It was um, quite a useful conference from the point of view of getting the the ideas of the government in Damascus. Um, although there is a certain amount of optimism there, uh, the foreign minister, Walid Mualim, uh, warned in the first session of the conference uh, that uh, there's no plan to go back to Geneva to hold talks between the government and opposition groups. And he also told this to Stefan de Mastura, who is the UN envoy last week. So uh, people feel that there is change and there is something moving. 
but they don't feel it has come to any um, uh, anywhere near fruition at the moment. But what uh, what exactly do they feel has changed? Is this to do with shifts in policy, as I mentioned, on the part of some of the countries like Turkey and Saudi Arabia that were uh, that were perceived as being sympathetic to some of these rebel groups you were talking about? Um, yes, it does. Uh, the Saudis have suffered about uh, nearly 40 uh, dead since last November from attacks by the Islamic State group whereas Turkey recently um, lost 32 people in a bombing on the border um, with Syria, which was carried out by Islamic State uh, personnel. Uh, the, the question is, these people have as it were, uh, opted for blowback with their um, supporters. And uh, everyone has, in the Middle East anyway has been waiting for this to happen, because you cannot rely on such people. They have their own agendas, and their agendas are not um, similar to those of their external supporters. They don't dovetail. Uh, the Islamic State group and al-Qaeda both oppose the Saudi government, and uh, they are not uh, very friendly with the Turkish government, which is more in line with the Muslim Brotherhood rather than the extremist groups. So what have the Saudis decided to do? Well, it seems that there was some kind of contact between the Saudis and the Syrian government. It's not exactly clear what the contact consisted of. Um, they say, on, on what some sources told me, that um, the... Uh, uh, the security uh, aid of President Assad went to Riyadh and met uh, the Saudi defense minister, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the king's son. Uh, but a high-ranking official also told me this isn't true. And another person with connections with security um, people said, no, a representative of the prince came to Damascus and spoke to Ali Mamluk, this uh, security aide of the president. There are definitely contacts, which were confirmed by my uh, government source, uh, between the Syrians and uh, the people in the United Arab Emirates uh, who want to reopen their embassy. And so that could be an opening uh, to the Gulf. There's the other opening to the Gulf is through Oman, because the ruler of Oman um, wants to um, bring an end to this war, as well as the war in Yemen, which, both of which involve the Saudis. But if uh, some of these, uh, these things that you're talking about come to pass, if, uh, and if this new offensive against the so-called Islamic State by the Turks and, the, uh, and the, uh, supported by the Americans, if those all come to fruition, is it clear that that would actually necessarily mean the Assad regime surviving? Or might it uh, mean some kind of renewal of talks uh, in Geneva, uh, which would then lead to Assad having to go? Well, the question is, um, as actually a Russian um, attendee at the conference said to me, question is, 
is it yes Assad or no Assad? Uh, he said the Russians want the stop to the war before they start on the yes Assad, no Assad uh, line. Uh, many people believe that Assad will have to stay until there is a transitional government that can operate. Um, and, um, and also, his people will have to negotiate with whoever uh, comes to Geneva on the opposition side, if there is an opposition side. Uh, one must always remember that the opposition has absolutely no support inside Syria, the, the opposition which is based in Istanbul. And uh, this is a big problem because they don't really represent anyone. And Assad does, in fact, rule over the majority of Syrians who live in the areas where he is uh, holding them under control. In Damascus itself, what was the atmosphere? Well, the atmosphere in Damascus is fairly relaxed. People are going about their business as best possible. Um, there are uh, restaurants open. People are having weddings and celebrating them in grand style. And people also sit in the parks at night and have uh, take coffee and tea with them. As I say, it's fairly relaxed. The only major problem in Damascus right now is the infrequency of uh, electricity supplies and the inconstancy of the supplies. Before, when I was there in March, people knew when the cuts of electricity would come, and then they managed to um, uh, build their lives around those cuts. Now, of course, it is 40 degrees centigrade, and electricity can come and go at any time of the day or night. And so people are very frustrated. In fact, when they greet each other in the morning, they don't say, hello, how are you? They say, how is your electricity supply? Last year, Michael, in April of last year, uh, we spoke on this uh, uh, podcast uh, when you were in uh, a Christian town called Malula, um, a 14th century Christian town. And uh, you, uh, at the time, were in a, in a hotel which was being shelled, and we could hear gunfire in, uh, uh, down the hill in the valley below where you were as we were speaking. You've been back to that place. What did you find there? Yes, I was there yesterday. Uh, the people of Malula are rebuilding. Uh, the churches have been, the major churches, the, um, the St. Sarpice Church and uh, St. Takla Church, which is Orthodox, and St. Sarpice, which is Catholic, have um, cleared away the rubble and done major repairs. St. Sarpice had a big hole in the um, the ceiling of the church itself and the roof of the church itself and all of the stones which uh, were in the arched, arched area over the roof had fallen into the church. When I was there last year, this has all been repaired and they are going ahead with further repairs um, and hope to have uh, the churches in good order within coming months. The government is paying also for clearing up the streets and repairing the infrastructure. There is some electricity, as they said, just like Damascus, which means a bit chancy. And um, there is uh, law and order in the, in the town. 
about a thousand people have returned to live, a lot of them old people. Normally in summer there would be 12,000 because uh, Malula is much cooler and um, more comfortable to stay in than Damascus during the middle of summer. Um, and um, the churches outside, the Orthodox and the Catholic churches from outside, are providing money for the repairs for the convents and the churches. Michael Jansen, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.